if you're new and you want to drink, don't. Whoever heard of such a thing? Don't drink. If you're new, I also want to tell you that I'm, I don't believe that I'm as close to my next drink as you are. I only have till 12 o'clock tonight, but I, I don't believe I'm in danger like you're in danger. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I think if I am, then we're in trouble here. I only have till 12 o'clock tonight, but my not drinking muscle is much stronger than yours if you're new. I've been not drinking for a long time. Your drinking muscle is much, much stronger than mine. Now, I know that you know, people say it's a progressive disease, and I believe that. I believe that my disease has been um, developing for 18 years while I haven't been drinking. But you've been practicing. And it's, it's a different, you're just better at it than I am right now. I'm not saying that I couldn't get good real quick. <laughs> but you, you've been in the drinking gym. And you got a strong drinking muscle. And I got a strong not drinking muscle. You know? Um, you know, if you're new and you've been having drinking dreams, I just want to mention this to you. And this, again, I'll throw the gauntlet down. Normal people don't dream about drinking. And I defy you to produce one normal human being who does. My mother has never dreamt about walking into a palace made of cocaine. All right? My cousin Roz has never dreamt about paddling down a river of beer. But I have. So if you, you know, I still have an occasional dr drunk dream. If you're, if you're dreaming about drinking and you're new, I, I would put this to you. I don't think that's because you're going to drink. I think it's because you're a drunk. And if you're having trouble with the first step, take advantage of that little door. Take advantage of the fact that you are experiencing that I believe may, proves that you are bodily and mentally different from normal people. So uh, I had to do my eight-step list, um, and uh, I, uh, you know, it's funny. The last sentence on uh, page 69, when we're talk to, talking about what we, they said we should go through each individual thing with our sexual inventory and ask God what, we, what action we should take on each one, which kind of leads us into eight and nine. It says the right answers will come if we want them, not if we like them. Because sometimes I'll ask God, I'll get an answer, and I'll go, nah. Uh, <laughs> well, what, you got to have something else going on up there. <laughs> so I wrote up my eight-step list, and uh, there was uh, my wife and my kids and my dad were down there, and I didn't know what I was going to do about any of that stuff, and uh, I was feeling uh, really terrible about it, and I was blessed. I, I mentioned this earlier, that my sponsor uh, would not tell me how to uh, how to make amends, and I started doing this lame stuff. I, as I said, I went to my kid's school, and I got uh, they, we got them uh, on special ed, and and I went and I, I ran a reading group, and uh, my sons started recovering. You know, I uh, I was sober a couple of years, and and my uh, I was making lunch for my kids, and I said I said to my son Micah, "What do you want on your hot dog?" He said, "I want mustard, onions, and lettuce," and I went. Lettuce? He said, yeah, I want lettuce. And he walked away, and he came back about 45 minutes later and looked at me directly in the eye, and I'm not altering one syllable. He said, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. He was, he was eight. So I asked him to sponsor me. At that point. you remember when he said that? Yeah. What's that? What the hell is that? A couple of years after that, my son Jesse, uh, our, our son Jesse, uh, broke his wrist in a schoolyard accident in a growth plane. If you know the way kids develop, they have cartilage that's going to turn into bone as they develop. And once these areas get disrupted, it's really important that it doesn't get messed with. It's bad if it does. So I take Jesse to the hospital because I got insurance. And uh, I 
bring them back home, and um, they're brothers, so they're beating the crap out of each other in like five minutes, you know. And I had to let Micah know that this was not something I could repeat 11 times. It had to stop. So I got in his face, and I yelled at him. I said, can't, can't go on. So he walks away from me, goes into his room, and slams the door. Slam the door. So I got the dead tick going now, you know. Slam the door. So I go to the door and I open the door. And before I can unload it, I mean, he looks up at me. He was 10. He said, excuse me, you were right out there. I didn't see you were wrong. But a big guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled at me. Don't tell me that I can't be mad. I'm not telling you you can't be wrong. Don't tell me I can't be mad. What the hell is that? What is that? What is that? That is, do you actually think that your anxiety is, is helping me in any way? That's overcoming, and this, this, this defect has, has been such a block to me enjoying my own life, and the freer of it get, I get, the, the more comfortable I am. Fear of confrontation. To overcome a fear of confrontation. What did he do there? He told me how he felt without telling me what to do, and he asked for the same treatment. He didn't demand it, but I would have been embarrassed not to because he was such a great example. <laughs> you know, he said, dude, a, a nut just like slobbered in my face. I'm scared. I'm scared and I'm pissed off. And you're right. Can you live with that? Yeah, I could live with it that day. I could live with it that day. What a great way to live. What a fabulous way to live. Um... When my son, uh, Micah, got into a car accident uh, a couple of years ago, he's, uh, he'll be turning 25 in a couple of weeks, and he um, got into a car accident, and, uh, and this is a direct result of the kind of sponsorship that I got and continue to get in AA. He got in an accident, he was with a friend, he got out of his car, and he went to make a call, and his friend said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to call my dad. And his friend said, are you psycho? Why are you calling your father? Are you insane? And Micah just looked at him and said, you don't understand, my father's not going to be angry at me for being hurt. Wow. Wow. That's what I've gotten in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm with people who don't get angry at me for being hurt. You know? What an incredible gift. And I saw it in my children. My wife and I learned how to fight by watching our children. I felt so ashamed and so guilty. My kids were on my eighth and ninth step list. They start to fight. I separate them because I feel so guilty about them being injured. I want to stop them from being hurt anymore. So the result is, is they don't know how to end the fight. They don't know how to end the fight. Some big hand is going to come us <laughs> apart, and then we'll start again. Don't worry, we'll start again. We won't forget, we'll start again. Which reminds me of my marriage. My whole life of my marriage, before I got sober, was like, are we back here again? How did we get back here? Because we never finished anything. I screamed till she shut up, or I cried till she shut up. Or, don't forget a good loom, but, um, and my wife, because she was, she was getting better, she said, Scott, let, let them fight. And I, I literally, my body would shake. I'd have to sit on my hands, and I would let them finish. And by God, they'd finish. They, they, and, I, and, and then Nancy and I would scream at her, and she'd take a deep breath and go, okay. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean, okay? Aren't we done? No, we're not done. <laughs> we're not done. Just because your brain blew up doesn't mean that we're done. <laughs> The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is never argue with a drunk. 
Don't do it. Don't argue with them. Don't argue with a drunk drunk. It's one of my favorite Al-Anon sayings. Do not argue with them when they're drunk. Um, and when I'm in self, it's not a good idea to argue with me. And I've, been, my, I've, I've experienced that kind of thing in the relationship with my kids. Um, I want to talk about how I uh, managed to make uh, 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 amends to my father in sobriety. I, uh, <clears throat> it was one of the worst things on my inventory, my resentment against myself uh, for not being there for my dad when he uh, died. And um, a couple of years in sobriety, I started sponsoring a guy... Uh, who eventually called me up and he said, you know what, if you can work it into your busy schedule, uh, blow up. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear any more crap about the book or you. Take a hike. And then he uh, progressed to start ripping some people off in AA. He stole a car. How could anyone steal a car? Uh, he uh, uh, ripped, <laughs> ripped off an apartment, ripped off some money. He was making me look pretty bad. And uh, I, wanted, uh, <laughs> I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to sit down and, and explain a few things to him. And my sponsor said, he actually uh, took a quote from the end of Bob, Dr. Bob's story, and he used it very beautifully. He said, you've so frightfully abused your right to tell people where they stand in the universe, you've lost it. Dr. Bob says, I've so frightfully abused my right to drink, I've lost it. And uh, he said, why don't you sit down and write, I'm resentful of PJ for ripping people off in AA and making me look bad. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations. What are the defects in me? I'm a complete hypocrite. I've done everything this guy's doing. I have spiritual pride. That's a new one. Didn't get that till I came to AA and became a spiritual Goliath, right? How dare a man comport himself thusly after coming into contact with my spirit, man of my spiritual caliber? It's very, very hard to believe. Uh, I'm playing God. I can't be... I can't be experiencing the gift of the third step if I'm playing God. Uh, I'm grandiose. I'm impatient. This guy is certainly not getting uh, uh, sober on my schedule. I'm a mind reader and I'm a people pleaser because I care more about what people are thinking and how I look in, in AA than what this guy's going through. And I read it to my sponsor and I did my work and went, I went on with my life and sometime later this guy called me and he uh, found out that he had a... Uh, in, in the interim period, before this guy called me again, I was online uh, for work, uh, getting lunch before I went to work. And the guy in front of me was a guy he, who was buying like a can of Colt 45 with like, you know, loose change and a half-eaten milk dud. You know the guy, right? And uh, he's standing in front of me and he turns around and he looks at me and goes, what are you looking at? And in, instead of in my best Bronx saying nothing, I, I said, uh, how you doing? He said, you don't know how I'm doing. Nobody knows how I'm doing except for the people in AA. So we went outside, we had a talk, and I went on my first real 12-step call. I, got, I called a guy with more time than me, and we called another guy, and he said, look, and I don't know why, but he just said, take him down to County General and dump him off at the door. Don't go in, don't show him that you've got any resources. But we didn't do that. I don't know why, I can't tell you why. We went all the way through the whole process, all the way up to the alcoholic ward. About halfway through, the guy we're with turns to us and goes, I feel like I'm dying. And the guy with more time than me looks at me and goes, that's because you are. And I went, I said, I pulled him aside and said, how can you say that to him? I'm scared he's not going to like us, right? How can you say Now, what is the guy supposed to say? The guy is there at a county facility. He's been told to lie that he's got blood in his urine so he can break his way into a county hospital. What is the guy supposed to say? It's just a bad day. Just, this isn't a bad day. This is what dying feels like. I'll let you know when you're having a bad day. This isn't it. And yet, again, you'll see men and women come in at Alcoholics Anonymous with bottoms that will make your hair stand on end. You will say they'll never drink again. And if they don't 
have this experience after a period of time, it'll be a bad day. It'll be a period of time where people were thinking behind their back and they will get on with the process of dying. And it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing to witness. Um, so sometime later, my friend uh, PJ called me and uh, he uh, had a, a failed illness and he called a county uh, agency and they said, all we can do is take you down to county general and dump you off at the door. I knew that that wasn't true because I had done my job in AA. And that's what my sponsor told me to do with all of these resentments, uh, these, these uh, amends that I didn't know how to do. He said, just do your job. Just do your job in AA. Uh, and, and PJ, uh, um, uh, and I knew that, that wasn't true. Cause it was, also, PJ couldn't call anybody else because the rest of the people around him apparently had told him what they thought of him. And I hadn't done that because I'd done my job in AA and I had written the 10th step. So I was the last guy he could call. So I got to be there for the uh, guy the night that he died. I got to be there and I got to hold him. And we didn't know what AIDS was at the time. It was, you know, it was the gay flu. Nobody knew. You thought that you could get it from touching a man's sweat. I mean, people just didn't know. And I'd go down there and I'd say this prayer. Now's the time for love. Now's the time for peace. Now's the time for understanding. I love you, Father. And I didn't. And, and, and I would I'd kiss him. His sweat would get on my lips. And I'd, I'd scrub my lips when I walked in, out. Because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know about it. I didn't know that you had to be in a vat of sweat you know I, did, I didn't know about it and it didn't happen that day it didn't happen that month or that week what happened was in my life I realized that that vice was off my heart I realized that when my father was mentioned I stopped going like this I realized that my sons had no relationship with my dad because they hadn't even seen a picture of him and I started putting pictures of my father up in the house and my, I started telling my sons funny stories about my old man and about my family. You know, I have a relationship, a wonderful relationship with my father today. I didn't get that by working on it. I couldn't have worked on it. All I can do is what's in AA. Um, my uh, son Jesse, we, uh, one of the things we did in addition to music... Uh, you know, it was really funny. My, my kids were so used to being so scared and so terrorized in our house. And they started working on some of the drunks that I'd bring over to work with. You know, um, I came in, I left uh, Danny C. Some You know him early on. He came to my house to start doing the step work. And I went to get a drink, I, uh, a water, and I came back, and Jesse was about six. He's looking at Danny. He says, uh, what step you on? And uh, Danny goes, four, four, three. No, four, no, three. I said, he's... He's six. Uh, uh, one day a guy did it, started doing this stuff. He had to come back the next night to finish it. And Jesse was sitting doing his homework, writing. And, he, and when the guy walked in for the second night, he didn't even look up. He just said, what's the matter, dude? Blew it last night. Got to do it again. And, um, <laughs> they, and they just, they, it was wonderful. It was wonderful for them to feel that free, that relaxed, being able to kid around, being able to bust somebody's chops. You know, uh, and not being scared all the time. Um, so we got the boys in the sports. We got them in a little league, and and, uh, and my, I went to my first little league game, and my wife came and lo- uh, to the game and looked over at the crowd and started cracking up, because there's all the people in the first base stands, and there's me in the sun, pissed off, just completely psycho, going up three hat sizes, you know, just nuts. I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my job, I'm here, I'm here. The kids were thrilled to see me. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man, look at him, watch him. And it took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number for me to just sit in the stands. 
to just be at my sobriety station, to just be there. And my son played ball for a couple of years and received eventually one of the great gifts that a human being or compliments that a human being can get. He was intentionally walked. So if you're not a fan, that means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you and it's pretty cool, you know. But he didn't want to be lame, you know, you can't gotta be cool. So he didn't want to jump up and down and yell, he just laid his bat down, very cool, trotted up the first baseline, and all the way up the first baseline he turned to me at my sobriety station and he just shot me just a little bit of stuff. It's the old man, you don't want to spoil him, be cool. And uh and trotted his way up the first base. And I could have missed the whole thing. And I'm not telling you that my son was intentionally walked because I'm sober, because I don't believe that. I believe I was at my sobriety station because I was sober. And I've been with enough guys who have been drunk on their kid's birthday again. And I want to tell you, I'm talking a lot about kids today. But that moment, that crucible, that thing that our consciousness and our realization turns on, I put no premium on kids. That can be the houseplant that you let die because you were too drunk to water it. I don't care where it manifests itself for you. Kids, a house pet, I know that, that pets have gotten to have, it, people have experienced it on that. It just If I can get into some kind of condition to be of some help to a suffering person, that's the point. The vehicle to me is completely immaterial at this point. Um, I... Uh, Years ago, I was, ta- I was on my way to an AA function, and it was Halloween. And for those of you who have lived back east or live here, Halloween's just great. It's just great, you know. It's a great time for community. And if you're from back east, you know that, you know, there's usually leaves blowing around. There's a great feeling in the air. I know my friend Liz knows all about that. And, and it's, it's just a great deal, you know. And I was driving to this thing, and because of what was happening to me in 8 and 9, you know, well, no a new peace and a new freedom. I used to look outside of the, the, uh, the windshield of my car like I was watching a weird B movie. I felt so separated from it. And I'm watching kids, and you know, running around with capes on, and just that great thing, that thing that you see on Halloween. And I realized, this is a couple of years in AA, I had the moment, I've had it many times since, I felt connected to it. I felt connected to what was going on. Now, also in me, I had bought my kids five years' worth of costumes. They won't let me costume them now. They select their own costumes. But, um, um, so I had exercised that muscle. I spent a couple of dope dollars to make sure that the neighborhood kids had some candy when they came to our house so we didn't have to go to our usual turn out the front lights, the house of love. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's amazing. Again, if I had fully appreciated how much I had uh, excluded myself from the mainstream of life by the time I got here, I don't know that I could have really coped with it. And the, the, the more... The more goodish that I've become, the more... And you know, I, I've heard in AA sometimes people say, I don't want to get well. Well, I do. I do. And, and, the, and the seventh chapter says, wife or no wife, uh, job or no job, tell a man he can get well. If he starts to depend on this power greater than himself. I, I can't get cured. I, 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 at this point, I have no desire to get cured. But I do very much want to get well. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, the biggest gift comes from, well, our book says, the biggest gift of amends comes from people who we feel have done more harm to us than we have to them. One of the most important uh, uh, amends for me was uh, amends to my brother. I loved him very much. We were very close. And he, uh, a couple of months before I got sober, he wrote me a letter saying it's, it's, just, it's just terrible having anything to do with you and I can't have any, any contact with you. 
So one of the amends I was uh, most anxious to make when I got sober, and it was very hard for me to wait until I was doing eight and nine to make it. Uh, I tried to call him. He would not return my calls. I wrote him a letter apologizing for what I had done, and he wrote me back a letter. I read it to my sponsor. The letter said, you owe me no apology. If you live to be a million and you're sorry every day of that million years, you won't even come close to beginning. And I read it to my sponsor, and he said to me, <laughs> rip it up. And I said, why? And he said, because you might reread it. Wow. And I've gotten to do that with a bunch of other guys. And I ripped it up. He said, do your job in AA. <clears throat> I haven't talked to my brother in over 20 years, about 19 years now. Um, he, my, my, when I got sober, my sons were 6 and 3. They're 25 and 21. They're grown up. That's done. That's not, that's done. And that's okay. And I just want to talk a little bit about what the inventory process has done to help me guide me through this 8th and ninth step with my brother. Because it was one of the really important ones for me. I, uh, again, when my sons would experience events in their life where there was stuff, I had a knee-jerk reaction of wanting to tell my brother stuff, you know, call him, talk to him, tell him stuff. And I couldn't, so occasionally I'd have to re-examine an inventory and write, I'm resentful of Mitchell for continuing to not talk to me. What are the defects? And then pray about it. And then I realized that my brother was very troubled, very ill. He was very spiritually sick. So how can I show him the same tolerance, pity, and patience and uh, that I would cheerfully grant a sick friend? One of my defects obviously has to be that I'm unwilling to accept the fact that my brother is a, is a child of God who could be spiritually sick. It's got to be one of my defects. The book says if I can accept their spiritual sickness, I'll show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. So if I'm resentful that someone's spiritually sick, guaranteed that's on the defect list. Most pro very profoundly with my brother. So one of the defects I take a look at finally is that I'm ungrateful. What if he is so sick that it would be so injurious for my sons to have contact with him that I should be grateful for not having to talk to him? Man, did I get relief from that. I didn't have to call him names. I didn't have to put him down. I could say, this, this could be really a, really a good thing that I don't have to have that in my life. And then a couple of years later, it sprang up again, and that stopped working for me, and I had to dig back in with a 10-step and write the resentment again, and then I had this beautiful experience in 8 and 9. I said, stop being right, Scott. Stop it. Stop making... Well, you have this thing in your head that you've got this great life. You sponsor all these guys. They'd like to be your brother. Why doesn't your real brother want to be your brother? Stop being so goddamn attractive. What if you suck? What I mean by this, from his point of view, what if it is so injurious to your brother to have any contact with you? Forget about whether or not he should feel that way. Forget about whether or not you're really hurting him. What if it hurts him so bad to be in contact with you that it's a blessing for him to not talk to you? And I was free. I was free. Absolutely. I, because the question is, who are you to deny him that? Who are you to demand? He's not calling you up and saying you suck. He's not calling your kids up and hurting them. He just doesn't want to talk to you. Who are you to take that away from him? And I said, you know what? I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. I know that you will restore me to sanity. I turn my will and my life over to you. I turn my brother over to you. And I re-experienced those first three steps over and over and over again. So, that's eight and nine. 
Uh, we're we're going to take a break. I, uh, people's eyes are rolling back in their heads. It sort of feels like my favorite bar right now. Um, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, uh, about step 10 and uh, continuing to do inventory. If you've got any questions or areas you want me to cover, leave me a note. Thanks. Um, step 10. We're going to talk about step 10, 11, and 12. I, I would say that we've got two more sessions to go and then we'll be done for the day. So I'm going to do a session pretty much about step 10 into step 11 and then we'll finish off with 12 and go home. Um, well, step 10, here it is. Peace of mind, restoration of sanity, removal of the alcohol problem. Uh, I continue to have problems as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a man living his life in the world. And uh, I uh, am my first year of sobriety, I was, I was sponsoring guys pretty young in sobriety. I, I was becoming a, kind of a spiritual Goliath uh, at that time. And I, um, I had an overture made to me to uh, uh, direct a situation comedy to be a, a staff director for a sitcom. It's a good job. A lot of dough. I felt that, uh, that if I got this job, it really would benefit the men that I sponsor. Because they'd see me prosper. What a great message. So uh, I went cuckoo. I went absolutely nuts. I obsessed on this thing. I spent the money in my head. I went mad. And I almost drank. And I was humiliated. I uh, went to a function that this sitcom was doing. It was a company picnic. And the executive producer said to have a beer. And I took the beer. And I walked two steps away. And I went, I'm dead. I called my sponsor. I was humiliated. I told him what I had done. And he said to me, well, I guess you have the show business god. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, okay, God keeps you sober. You didn't get a show business job, and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God, and he has abandoned you utterly. Um, when I came into AA, I had heard uh, God getting people into relationships, God getting people out of relationships, God getting people parking spaces. Oh, no, not the parking space God, not the parking space God. And if you have a parking space God, and he gives you space... Pass it on. Um, it's somehow the parking space guide tops short. I don't know what that's all about. A space. Let me give it away. Um, he said, you know what? When you do your 10th step, because I was resentful at myself for almost drinking, and I was resentful at the company for not giving me the job. He says, when you do 6 and 7, and I wrote those resentments down, and I went to him, and I read it to him, and I read the defects, Greed, not living in today, blackmail, I'm blackmailing God, right? Let me prosper thusly and I'll do your work. Um, he says, when you do six and seven this time, you're really going to have to have, this is, this, is, this is, I stood at the turning point and I asked this for protection and care with complete abandon. This is, Pop, what do I need to do? You got it. Take it. You've got show business. I obviously can't handle it. I almost drank. My life's unmanageable around show business. I'm powerless over show business. I, I hope you can restore me to sanity around show business. I think you can. I will now endeavor to turn my will and my life over to the care of you in, in terms of show business. Take it. I'll do anything you want me to do for a living. You got it. Within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. I looked up to God and I said, I did not mean this. I didn't. I, this, this wasn't even on the, the long list. I mean, I, I did not mean this at all. 
Now, you know, in L.A., when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer, and the caterer follows the crew and the uh, cast around, and uh, they make great dough. It's Teamster dough. You're on a set on a vehicle. It's uh, great money. It's a great job. But I'm Scott Redman. And uh, <laughs> the first movie that I catered, the executive producer and star of the movie, was a guy who I had worked with in the business. And he stuck his head on the truck that morning, and he said, Can I have a burrito? <laughs> Scott? <laughs> and I said... Well, what's happening, babe? And he, he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Yeah. It's just beautiful. <laughs> he said, sounds like you've got a resentment. I'm resentful at Scott for working on the kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What does it mean that if God would remove? I'm ashamed. I have false pride. I'm grandiose. I'm ungrateful. I'm working. I just got sober and I'm working. Right? I'm impatient. Things aren't moving along. I'm not trusting in God. And I just kept doing that tense. I wound up feeding people I had, who had been my assistant directors and stage managers on shows I had directed. I wound up serving people lunch who I had directed in, in soap operas and stuff. And I come back to my home group with a new tale of humiliation every week. And the guys would go, ha! <laughs> and, and I learned how to give them a dime for their nickel, you know. And my younger son, Jesse... He didn't give a crap about me writing and directing. He asked me to teach him how to cook. You know, and I tell him, we would go to the market and we'd pick out what was fresh, and I taught him how to cook. When he was a student at the University of Chicago, he'd call me up and, and have him talk him through sauces. I mean, this is what we did together. It wouldn't have happened around writing, maybe, you know, but I didn't want to be a cook, you know, and this is what brought us together. It still brings us together. And... um I helped some guys who felt that they had fallen from a height in AA. You know, I had a friend named Paul who felt he had fallen from a height in AA. And he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Pop, I'm willing to do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. But please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> I was so glad to help him out. You know, it was such a pleasure. That guy, Paul, he came over to my house one day. I was going to uh, start him out on the steps. Now, on my inventory, there was a guy named Mark from my area in the Bronx. Mark used to kick my ass every day when I was a little kid. I used to have nightmares about this kid. Then when we started going out with girls, he humiliated me during Spin the Bottle. I mean, he was a, a horrible nemesis for me and a nightmare, and he was all over my inventory. So this guy, and this is in the Bronx, 30 years, 36 years before the events that were taking place. So Paul, this guy, Paul, comes into AA, and he's the star... One of the, it was one of the stars of the sitcom that I didn't get the job on. So he comes in, and now I'm helping him because I'm a caterer now. And I'm going, this is great. So he comes over to my house for me to show him on the steps. He says, I'm a little late. Our new director, the man with my job, our new director, Mark, is teaching. And I said, Mark, what? And he told him, and it was the same guy. And I looked up, I went... Don't you have anything else to do? Is this like a hobby? Is it just like humiliate the Jew week? What the hell? I mean, it's just like this was getting so... And I just, I started laughing my ass off. So, you know, this so new director, Mark, we have. He's teaching an acting class. I guess I was a guest at the acting class. That's why I'm late. 
Oh, my God. So I just, I had, you know, and I showed up. I, I learned how to give them a dime for their nickel, uh, and, and, and I, I became free. And I said, you know, I want a dream, and my dream was to write well. And my father said to me, I will, I will get you so free of procrastination, low self-esteem, jealousy, that you can write well. And I said, well, I'd like a, you know, a three-picture deal. And God, and God said, that's actually a personal problem. That's not my job. I'll help you write well. If your dream is to write well, I can do that. I can get you so free of this spiritual sickness that you can write well. The rest of the stuff, that's like telling me you want to be in the house instead of the refrigerator box. My God's just not doing that. He's not giving out jobs. But he'll help me pursue my dream. I've got to scrub the dream, though. <laughs> if, I can, if the dream can adhere to spiritual principles, I'm in great shape. Do I want that other stuff? Absolutely. And I will either suffer or not suffer, depending on how attached to that I am. How much I desire that. How much I crave that. I'd like that. Do I have to suffer until I get it? Man, I hope not. I really hope not. Being sober and suffering just sucks. And I'm not talking about having problems. I've got plenty of problems. But my, willfully suffering is something that I, I'm able to avoid a lot at this point. So I cooked, and I learned how to be a good cook. And I um, did it for about three years. And then a company called Ketchum Public Relations made an overture to me. Um, this can't be right. When did we start again? Five to two, we started again? Thank you, sorry. Uh, a company called Ketchum Public Relations made an overture to me after about cooking for about three years uh, for this big time uh, comedy writing job. Now, I felt that at this point, if I got that comedy writing job, right? Because I had suffered and been so good spiritually, I really felt that the guys I sponsored at this point really would benefit. <laughs> because they see me go through all of these difficulties and talk all this long spiritual shit about it, that they really would. So I went mad. I mean, I, I, I had to do a videotape for these guys to kind of audition for the thing. I did the videotape, and then my brain blew up. I, I, I was attached to it. I, I desired it. I craved it. And I went nuts. And I... I uh, I wrote about it, read it to my sponsor, because I was already resentful about not getting the job. Um, and uh, I read it to him, and I was cool. And then I got a call from Ketchum that I did not get the job. And I was cool. And then shortly after that, I got a call from my catering company asking me to go up to Lake Arrowhead in the mountains above L.A. and uh, uh, cater a commercial up there. So I got in the truck and got up there, and I grabbed the, the call sheet, which is the sheet of paper that explains everything about the shoot to you. And I saw that on the sheet that it, uh, the commercial was for Ketchum Public Relations. So I'm feeding them now. Now I'm feeding them. I'm feeding them. And I looked down at the end of the truck, and there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, we're, making, we're, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. And he's going to go back to New York, and he's going to show it to them, and they're going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf? Oh, my God, that poor son of a bitch. So I called my sponsor, and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Oh, yeah. This is beautiful. This is a miracle. Miracle, miracle, miracle. This is such a miracle. <laughs> and he said to me, <laughs> he said to me uh, I guess God 
I needed a few cooks. You didn't need any writers today, just a few cooks. And then he said, you know, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum, and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. On a movie set, quite often a director will scream at the first assistant director, the first assistant will scream at the second, the second will scream at the third, and the third will go, where's the goddamn caterer? So I would have kids chewing my ass out while I'm trying to do my job. And occasionally, I know this probably won't believe me, I would think to myself, someday you'll come in to meet your, own, your new boss, and it'll be me, and I'll make every living, breathing moment of your life a living inferno. But because I worked the 10th step and continued to examine these things, when I went back up at Universal and was a staff director on a show, and they brought in uh, the new first assistant to meet me, and he walked into the room, looked up, and went, that's the caterer. That's the caterer, not the caterer, no. And I, I, I didn't have to torture the guy, but I, when I saw him go, mm-hmm, I, I, I got a kick out of it. I, I, it wasn't wasted on me, I'll just say that. It was a great thing. I, I, I was on the uh, Universal lot, and um, a, a grip. A grip is a guy on a, a movie set to make sure that everything goes well and fits together and the shots work right. And this grip who I had worked with walked up to me and said, Oh, you're that caterer. You're such a great guy, man. It's such a pleasure working on a show that you're feeding. He said, What are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm uh, directing the show on stage 46. And he said, Did you go right from the catering to the directing? Did you? Uh, <laughs> Um, so this, uh, this issue of pursuing my dreams has always been extremely important to me. And then I've had things that don't go away, things that have not gone away, things that have come back on me. I've been sober for 18 years. I smoked cigarettes, three packs of unfiltered cigarettes a day when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my wife got a precancerous tumor on her uh, uh, vocal cord and um, I, I never wanted to stop smoking before and I wanted to stop smoking and I didn't know what to do because I felt that if I, I had an incredible thing happen to me in Alcoholics Anonymous I had <clears throat> stopped drinking and I felt that if I went to God and I asked him to stop smoking and I didn't smoke that I'd drink I didn't get it and this is how I got it. I had a great experience my wife 12-stepped me into Nicotine Anonymous, Smokers Anonymous it was called at the time Anyway, shortly before this, I was at an AA meeting. Part of my, uh, um, I, it's not true for me right now, but very much so when I was new in sobriety, part of my living amends to my wife was to comport myself in a way, in a manner in Alcoholics Anonymous where my integrity couldn't be tra- uh, uh, questioned with members of the opposite sex. I stayed away from women in AA, not because of the women in AA. I had, I had to know that my wife was really comfortable with me going to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just, that's the way it came out for me. And that's the way it happened. So after I talked at this meeting, afterwards a woman asked to to talk to me, which is something that I don't know that I normally would have done. I did it. I had a good talk with her. She was having a very difficult time. Subsequently, she said that I saved her life that night. I know that that's patently untrue. And I think sometimes we injure people when we tell them that. I think that the best compliment we can give another drunk is thanks for being present when the fire started. Thanks for being present when we blew on the ember together and we made a light together. That's really what it is. But she, she, uh, it's important and part of the story to tell you that she had said, you, you saved my life. So I go to my first Smokers Anonymous meeting, 
And that woman was taking a cake for a year of smobriety. And uh, she got up and took her cake. I don't think she saw me in the room. And she said, boy, I'm so grateful to be a member of Smokers Anonymous. I'm a member of AA, too. And I just want to tell you, I think anybody who, uh, who smokes cigarettes as a member of AA works a crappy program. So my brain blew up. I go home, and I'm thinking to myself, so you miserable bitch. I couldn't have helped you because I smoke, and I can't help people because I work a crappy program. So I went home and wrote about it, and um, I read it to my sponsor, and I got this incredible gift when I did 6 and 7 coming out of that 10-step. I realized that she was lying. It was, she was wrong. I worked a great program in Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't matter if I smoked. It had nothing whatsoever to do with AA, and I was free to stop smoking. I was free to stop smoking because I knew that this was not part of the deal. It had nothing to do with it. I could smoke, not smoke, do whatever I wanted, and still live happy, joyous, and free in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to hear when I was new something that is patently untrue for me today. Some of the guys I used to hang out with would say, you know what, you can do anything you want in AA as long as you're willing to pay the price. There's a big chunk of that equation that's missing. The conceit that you're going to be able to pay the price. How do you know you're able to pay it? That's like when people say, if I drank, I would. If I drank, I would, I don't know, go out for a pack of cigarettes and wind up in Baltimore? I don't know. Borrow your car and sell it? I don't know. I don't know. That's the whole deal. I don't know. So to say that you, you can do anything you want in AA as long as you're willing to pay the price, I think is a conceit that I'm not willing to assume anymore. I know that I wanted to be free of, resentment, of, of, of cigarettes, not because it makes me a better AA or it has anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. I wanted to be free of that. <clears throat> so I started writing 10 steps. I, w I wrote Fearless because I was scared of getting sick. I never wore seatbelts a day in my life until the day after I stopped smoking. I just figured the accident would cut down on the chemotherapy bills, and I did what I was going to do. But I want to tell you, what an incredible gift to really get that it had nothing to do with that. I've had a lot of other problems that have continued to come back on me. I went up over 300 pounds in sobriety. I went and graced Overeaters Anonymous with my presence. <clears throat> And this is the way the 10th step has developed. I'm resentful at Scott for being overweight. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character that are in, in me that if God were to remove, the resentment would be gone? I'm a glutton. No, no, don't fight me on this. I'm, <laughs> I'm stubborn. I keep returning to this. I'm self-serving. I'm not letting anything else nourish me. I'm doing it myself. I have low self-esteem. I'm a people pleaser. I'm, I'm in agony about this thing. I write it, I read it, I go right out and have a bowl of spaghetti and a pie. <laughs> Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Now, I'm, not, I'm using my thing with food, but I've had to use this with food, with money, with sex, with many things. I'm not changing. Uh, how can I use the 10th step for a fulcrum for change? How can I open this up? How can I stand in front of my maker naked and say, I'm a grown man, I can't bear this anymore? My whole life, if you're new, you're coming out of, this, of, the, of a state that I believe is like my state. My alcoholism constantly went below the horizon and stopped presenting itself as a real piece of business. It didn't. It didn't present itself as a real and present danger, as a real piece of business. So I kept drinking over and over again. There's no other explanation. 
if I appreciated the reality of it on a truly conscious level, I couldn't possibly do that. So what has Alcoholics Anonymous done? It's kept my alcoholism as a real and present danger, a real piece of business above the horizon, even when I'm not concentrating on it. That's the miracle. Because it's buoyed on the, on the shoulders of the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous are keeping that aloft because I'm connected to them. Otherwise, I'd have to focus on it all the time. So that when I, when I hear, again, that this is not about drinking anymore, for me it's 100% about not drinking. I don't want the advanced course here. I just don't want it. So, step six and seven. Since I go over the first five propositions in the book, I ask myself if I've done them thoroughly, am I ready to move forward? <clears throat> okay, well, obviously not. Because I got this thing with food, I keep repeating it, I keep reading it, and I keep going back, and I keep doing this. I got this thing with cigarettes, I keep doing it. I keep stealing money, and I keep doing it. I keep doing it. I can't be loyal in my relationship, and it's not okay. I won't be the arbiter of anybody's sexual conduct, but it's really not okay. It's not okay with the other person. It's not okay with me. I keep doing it. I keep doing it. I've got to go back to the first five propositions in the book and say, in this specific situation, how am I not applying them here? Whether it's cigarettes or money or I don't care what it is. How am I not, how am I trying to build mortar without sand here? And it's led me to all of this great grace and activity and action. Do I not really think that I'm powerless over food? That my life is unmanageable around food? Do I, is it step one? If it is, if I don't really think I'm unmanageable, what can I do? What piece of writing can I do? What, who can I talk to? How can I demonstrate it? What action can I take to show that I'm powerless? Do I not believe that, that, uh, that God, that a power greater than myself, can restore me to sanity here? I know God can keep Saturn on its axis, but he can't order lunch for me. I just don't think he could do it. What action can I take to demonstrate step two? How can I do that? How can I enlarge my spiritual life here in this situation? Or is it step three? Have I really not turned my will of my life over the care of God in this situation? What can I do? Who do I have to talk to? What action do I have to take? What ten things do I have to do before I repeat this action? How can I do it? How can I forestall the, 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 the activity so I can put the, full, the, the crowbar in and create a little surrender, to create a little commitment, to open this up so it will stay as a real and present piece of business in my life? Because the more I do it and I don't, I don't appreciate it as a piece of business, it hurts. It feels hopeless. I feel like crap. I feel ashamed and guilty. And I want to tell you, I'm, I am sick of it I really am you know um, or is it step four have I not done enough inventory in this situation or is it step five it says in step five that certain times newcomers will keep facts about themselves later on it crushes them am I really keeping some stuff here you know about about myself you know so I took the first five propositions of the book. I applied them to the specific, you know, with my way, you know, my, my way. It was, and the voice would say, go to OA. And I go, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then I, I, I was able to take some action in that situation. So this whole notion of repeating behavior that is uncomfortable to me has, has been an incredible gift to me to send me back to the first five propositions in the book and to take a look at those first five propositions in the book specifically applied to the specific problem. It's been an extraordinary experience for me. Um, uh, 
I might, my sponsor and I put a little prayer together about this, which I'll read to you, which uh, a guy sponsor has been having a really hard time uh, with stealing. He steals stuff. He steals work, and he steals a lot of money. And uh, he called me the other day, you know, it was that Britney Spears, uh, oops, I did it again. It was just, you know, I've heard this from this guy over and over again. And I said to him, are you ready to change? And he said, yes. And we said this together. We said, I want to change. I must change. Please, God, help me change. I cannot live knowing that this is wrong and continuing to do it. I must elevate it in my conscience and see it as a problem. Prayer is the measure of whether or not I'm in the game. I have to tell the truth. I have to take it, and I love this so much, from a complaint to a real piece of business. From a complaint to a real piece of business. I have to stand in front of it naked, surrender, do an inventory, make a demonstration. This is not a small deal. I don't want to live like this. I'm a grown man. I have been unconscious. I've been slipping into this. I've been acting without explanation. I want to keep it on a conscious level. I want to put it in my consciousness. Dear God, please direct my will to what you want me to be. I have to wake up. I've been asleep. I'm seeing it in a cloud. When I see it clearly, it will not be precious to me. When I saw my alcoholism, clearly it stopped being precious to me. It's, I stopped craving it. I stopped being attached to it. So, <clears throat> this isn't a self-help book, you know. This isn't a self-help program. But I know what I've done here, and I know when this guy called me, who I sponsored two days ago, I said, are you ready to change? We did this prayer together. He called me, and he wrote a $12,500 check, and he went and gave it to the guy. And he walked away happy. He, he did it. He did it. He made a demonstration. Now, I don't care if he gave the guy a dollar and a half. I don't give a crap about that. If I, if I don't, if, if I don't, if I don't, if I don't drink, if I don't drink, it makes it possible to don't, you know. I, um, I don't have any outside help in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll just explain that very briefly. Anything that I do instead of AA is outside help. Anything I do because of AA, for me, this is just for me, is inside help. I've gone to therapy because of AA. I've gone to other 12-step programs because of AA. I have seeked out other spiritual pursuits and spiritual teachers because of AA. Not instead, never instead of AA. And I believe for me there is no outside help. It's all inside. It's an inside job. If I start doing stuff instead of Alcoholics Anonymous, then, then uh, I'm in grave danger. I uh, had an extraordinary experience. Uh, ten years of sobriety, I separated from my sponsor, uh, who I had had for my entire uh, sobriety. And uh, he was and is a remarkable human being, a great, just an extraordinary guy. And um, I uh, resented him terribly And uh, when we had this separation. He was the best friend I ever had. He held the Torah at both, at my, both of my son's bar mitzvahs. Uh, when I, uh, they needed an emergency number at work, I left his name. When I go, uh, several times I had to go to the hospital, I called him before I called my wife. I had nothing to be angry at this guy for. Absolutely nothing. Here was the fact. We had a miserable separation. I don't th I, we had a, it was a bad separation. So I had to do a lot of 10-step work about it. I, had to, I resented him, and I resented myself, and I resented other people in our group who, I, who were thinking behind my back. Damn it. And, uh, and this is what I started to learn. 
that I had to be mindful of the quality of separation I had in my life. Before, when I was drinking, I separated pretty much in one way. Either I snuck out in the middle of the night, or I would burn the village. You burn the village, poison the cattle, kill everybody, and bye. Uh, the place looks like an ashtray. I can leave now. So I, I, didn't, I, I had no idea what a good separation was. By the way, a definition of a good separation is not that everyone's happy. That doesn't have to happen. Just like the, the opposite of resentment is not that everybody is happy, joyous, and free. So what my job clearly became was I had to stop allowing our bad separation from coloring our fabulous relationship. What a gift. What an incredible gift. Now, I had to be mindful of the many separations I've had in my life. I've separated from my sons 20 times. I separated from the toddler to the little boy, the little boy to the adolescent, the adolescent to the man. And I've had to mourn that every time I've had a separation. And before I got sober, the separations were not good. The separations have been great. They've been great in sobriety. We've had a grand time. When they've turned 18 and they've gone, you're done. <laughs> you're done. It's been great. Really great. Um, and I... Uh, uh, and then very much like my experience with my brother, I, I still couldn't shake it. I still, I was writing the resentments. I was going back to the first five prepositions in the book. Nothing was working. I was roasting on this resentment. And um, I, I got a new sponsor. I started working with him. And finally one day, after suffering with this thing for months, my new sponsor said to me, well, I guess you've done everything except for forgive him. And I said, what? He said, I... I, I, you've done everything except for forgive him. And he was absolutely right. I didn't understand forgiveness. I didn't understand it. I felt that if I forgave you, that means I was saying you were wrong. So that was bad for an alcoholic. I didn't understand that I was forgiving you for a perceived wrong. I didn't understand it. And my, my being unforgiving was the same thing I was doing with my brother, where I was making myself so precious and so attractive that... I had to make the amends, you know, why won't this man appreciate what we've done here? My sponsor hadn't done anything wrong. It was a perceived wrong, and I had to forgive him. And my sponsor took me to something I want to share with you right now. It's in a book called The Sermon on the Mount by a guy named Emmett Fox. And our, uh, our founders were uh, uh, dealing with this material when they started putting Alcoholics Anonymous together. Sermon on the Mount, the first section of the book is a breakdown. He takes each se section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and breaks it down and talks about it. And then at the end of the book, he takes the Lord's Prayer, sentence by sentence, and breaks it down. And I'm going to read to you excerpts from his section on Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says, We are inevitably obliged either for, to forgive our enemies in sincerity and truth, or never again to repeat the prayer. It is safe to say that no one who reads this with understanding will ever again be able to use the Lord's Prayer unless and until he is forgiven. Should, uh, should you now attempt to repeat it without forgiving, it can safely be predicted that you will not be able to finish it. The great general clause will stick in your throat. In other words, my grandmother would say, you should choke on it. This is pretty much how it would come out of her mouth. Notice that the writer does not say, I love this, forgive me my trespasses and I will try to forgive others. Or He doesn't say, I will see if it can be done. <laughs> or, and this is my favorite, I will forgive generally with certain exceptions. <laughs> 
he obliges us to declare that we have actually forgiven and forgiven all and that he makes and, and he makes our claim to our own forgiveness depend upon that wow if you cannot forgive at the present time you will have to wait for your demonstration until you can and at that point I was ready I was ready I was exhausted I was beaten like a rapid mule I was ready <clears throat> um, you will have to wait until, uh, for your demonstration until you can and you will have to postpone finishing your recital of the Lord's Prayer too or involve yourself in a position that you do not, that you do not desire forgiveness of God so if you're continuing to not forgive you say the prayer that just means you don't want to be forgiven Look, setting others free means setting yourself free the next paragraph is an exact reflection of 65, 66, and 67 in the big book of AA uh, because resentment is really a form of attachment it is a cosmic truth that it takes two to make a prisoner the prisoner and the jailer there is no such thing as being a prisoner of one's own account every prisoner must have a jailer and the jailer is as much a prisoner as his charge there's a guy named Baba Ram Das. some of you might know him he's an old acid named Richard Albert I love the guy and he uh, teaches uh, sometimes he teaches meditation in jails and prisons and one of the things he says is to the prisoners if you learn meditation the only people who will be in jail here will be the guards when you hold the resentment against anyone, you are bound to that person by a cosmic link, a real though mental chain. You are tied by a cosmic tie to the thing that you hate. The one person perhaps in the whole world whom you dislike the most is the very one to whom you are attaching yourself to, by a hook that is stronger than steel. Is this what you wish? Is this a condition in which you desire to go on living? The method of forgiving is this. Get by yourself and become quiet. Repeat any prayer or treatment that appeals to you. Or read a chapter of the Bible or any other book. Then quietly say, I fully and freely forgive the person. Mentioning the offender. I loose him and I let him go. I completely forgive the whole business in question. As far as I am concerned, it is finished forever. I cast the burden of resentment upon the God within me he is now free and I am free too I wish him well in every phase of his life the incident is finished the truth has set us both free I thank God then get up and go about your business on no account repeat the act of forgiveness because you've done it once and for all and to do it a second time would be detachedly to repudiate your own work afterward whenever the memory of the offender or the offense happens to come into mind bless the delinquent briefly and dismiss the thought do this however however many times the thought may come back in a few days it might return less and less often until you forget it altogether then perhaps after an interval, shorter or longer, the old trouble will come back to memory once more, but you will find that now all bitterness and resentment have disappeared. You are both set free in perfect freedom. You're a child of God. And now when I do that, and this stuff comes up, I, go to my, I say to myself, I forgave him. Oh, I forgave him. I'm forgetting. My wife says to me often, you're forgetting that you love me. It's a wonderful thing, because in that moment I'm full of self and I'm forgetting I love her, and the fact is, is that I do. You know. So to make this act of forgiveness with my sponsor was an incredible thing. And ever since, I, I have been re-imbued with the deep appreciation and love that I have of this man. Uh, if, if his name ever comes up in conversation, I'm able to seize upon that uh, opportunity to tell somebody how much I love him. 
And, uh, you know, that's not what life was like for me. If you told me you liked someone, I'd say, well, no, you don't. And this is why. And then I'd give you all the reasons why you shouldn't be feeling this way, which is madness. I told you about uh, the stuff about Nazis that was on my inventory, and I had to do steps six and seven with it. And I, I continue to do 10-step uh, work on it. And I was at an AA meeting one day at the North Hollywood Group, and there was a guy glued against the wall, and I looked at him, and he was just, his eyes were wild. And I said, how are you, man? He said, no, bad, man, I'm bad. He said, will you be my temporary sponsor? I said, do you, do you want to be temporarily sober? I mean, and he said, no. And I, uh, So I started working with the guy, and uh, he was the guy who had a, a Nazi flag in his living room. And... Uh, and I had to continue to do 10 steps so that I could do the 12th step because at times for me, I get so crazy in Alcoholics Anonymous with other alcoholics. If I don't do the inventory, I will leave here and I will not come back. And uh, a couple of years later, he called me and asked me what it was appropriate to bring to my son's bar mitzvah. What kind of gift and how should he dress? Man, man, oh man, oh man. Uh, last year he called me up and he said he and his uh, fiance had discussed this and they had done some due diligence and they had found a way for me to be deputized by the county of Los Angeles so I could marry them. So I went down and took this class and got licensed to marry people for one day. I could have married anybody. I wanted to go on a tear, but uh, I didn't. And... Uh, I don't think that was high on his uh, Aryan Brotherhood list of things to do. Get married by Jew. Um, I don't, I don't uh, think that was up there. So what, what, an, incredible, uh, what an incredible blessing. Um, another thing that has happened for me, uh, I, uh, uh, my son Micah, when he um, was graduating high school, uh, instead of going to college, elected to go to Chiapas, Mexico, and work with the Zabatista revolutionaries for a while. <laughs> now, <laughs> during the 60s, I talked a lot of long shit and never got out of the living room. He was out there. He went down before, uh, right after one slaughter and left right before another one. And you might not like his politics, but you can't say he's not putting his money where his mouth is. He went out there and threw himself in between helpless people and the bad guys. He was part of something called the peace camps. There were installations in the jungle of Westerners who were sent there to bear witness to make sure that the Mexican military didn't abuse the indigenous peoples. And every three weeks or so, he's completely incommunicado for three weeks. Then he'd go into San Cristobal de las Casas and write up a report about what he had seen. So we didn't talk to him for three weeks at a shot. And I don't know that I've been that scared in a long time. When he came back, I said, what was it like? The village. He said, oh, Dad, I'll tell you what it was like. The first day I got there, they asked me if I'd like something to drink. And I said, yes, I'd like a cup of coffee. And they said, good, let's go pick some. Um, so you didn't ask for a soda down there, I'll tell you that. But, uh, and they went pick coffee, roasted it on a hot rock, and made coffee. So you just had to be careful what you asked for. And, uh, and I would be terribly scared. And again, I have to deal with this shame and guilt I had about feeling like I hadn't protected my sons. And then realizing through this process that I was no longer the source of anxiety for my sons. I wasn't. I'm not saying they didn't have anxiety. I'm not saying they didn't have a difficult time. But I was no longer the source of it. And uh, I would take a, and I'd discuss it with my sponsor and do the 10 step and write fear lists. I'd do the 10 step exactly the way I did inventory, uh, my fourth step. 
and I'd say, Father, please remove this terrible fear of the Mexican military. It was like a bad Oliver Stone film, just like replaying in my head over and over again. And uh, I'd say, look, I can't bear this. I can't handle the Mexican... I mean, you know the Mexican military is usually de depicted as such a kind, loving group of people. And I would just have these pictures in my head, and my, my sponsor would say, take the third step with the Mexican military. And I, I'd hit the ground, and I'd say, I, Pop, you take it. I can't handle the Mexican military. Church. And I'd take a walk every morning, and I'd take the first three steps. I'd do the seven-step prayer and I turned the Mexican military over to God and the way, it's some, and one morning there was just no escape I got pounded to shit by this fear it just as fast as I could get the prayer out that's how fast it came back and I called my sponsor and I was crying and he did that thing he did that great thing he didn't fight with me we're not supposed to fight with drunks it says it over and over again Stop fighting with him. He didn't fight. He didn't say, no, you're not scared. He didn't say something idiotic like, he'll be fine. No. He said something incredible. He told me the truth. He said, it was just like the experience I had with my brother. Like, who am I to take away from my brother not seeing me if that's a blessing for him? He said, what if this is the greatest thing he ever does? He didn't say it, but I completed the sentence. Who the hell am I to take that away from him? Now, I don't know if it's the greatest thing he'll ever do, but man, it was something. He came back here fully cut cloth. He came back here whole. You know, the, he was back a week, and my, he went to Osh for something. And my wife said, can, you think he can do it? I said, well, he's gone to Chiapas. I think Osh is okay. I think, I, I think he'll master Osh. <laughs> And a revolutionary down there and sat him down and turned to him one day. This is why he came back. He said, thank you for being here. This is not your fight. Go to your fight. And that's why he came back. He didn't come back because I'm scared. He didn't come back because I got him on the phone and I said, you know, your mother's about done. A chopper is going to appear over where you're going. Oh, a Jewish woman's going to rappel out of the chopper. Scoop your skinny ass up and bring you back. Because, I mean, we were just like... You know, like this. You know. He was, uh, I told him I, I'd been down to San Antonio. I don't know if anybody's spent time down there. It's a great town. San Antonio's just a great town. So Micah said, I'm coming back into the States to San Antonio. I said, oh, you're going to love it. It's great. I would have told him it was the capital of the world just to keep him moving north, you know. And uh, So he calls me. He's been in the jungle for six months. He calls me. He says, Dad, you're right. San Antonio was so great. I said, really? He said, yeah, I, I, I ate lunch and... and uh, and I went to pay, and this guy had paid for my lunch already. And I said, uh, son, do you, do you look indigent right now? And, and there, there was a pause. He went, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> anyway, folks, I, uh, um, the 10th step has been my fulcrum from change, my respite from suffering, my, uh, the source of my change in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, it's been my trip back to the first five steps. Um, for my first 17 and a half years of sobriety, I did not really do any real meditation in AA. For my first 10 years of sobriety, I had almost no exposure to the 12 traditions, and I stayed sober, and not as happily as I could have. I'm very, very sorry that I, uh, I uh, was not impacted uh, directly by studying and learning about the traditions for my first 10 years. My first uh, home group that I was on the board of trustees for uh, during that period of time really was not governed by the 12 traditions. 
It was not. And um, I was told crazy stuff by old-timers that I believed. I mean, I was told that New York is rich. they got millions of dollars. They don't need money from anybody else. I didn't know, you know, Peter was, I think, the first guy who ever said, mentioned the 12 concepts to me. Uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what he was talking about. And I just want to tell you, if you're new, that the more I have delved into the stuff and learned about it, the easier it has become for me to be a member of AA and to be happy, joyous, and free. It just has become a very easy, wonderful thing. Questions that I had in my head, burning questions about anonymity, about home groups, about entrenched power, about all that stuff have become very, very simple matters to me. It's been tremendously helpful. Um, I, I, at times when I was new in AA, I would heard people say that uh, praying is talking to God and meditation is listening to God. I, I don't even know what that means. I have no idea what that means. And what happened to me as, I, as my prayer life grew, and I started working with a sponsor who started growing me up spiritually, I started actually reaching out and finding out how to meditate. I got a book that said, How to Meditate. I started, I read this, I listened to tapes by a, a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello, who I just love. I got one of his books called Sadhana, A Way to God. And it's a meditation book about how to quiet your brain so you can pray. Because my prayer is becoming mechanical. It's hastily mumbled. I'm praying in the car. I'm just getting it done. I'm clocking in. One, two, three, seven, go! <laughs> and, and so now I, I, I took a commitment to start meditating two minutes in the morning. Two minutes, 120 seconds. It's hard to say that you don't have that. It's hard to say that you don't have 120 seconds. But that's what I committed to. So that I could quiet my brain to prepare for this dialogue I was going to have with my maker. Sometimes a new guy will say to me, I had a hard day. And I say, did you take the first three steps this morning? And if he says no, I usually ask him, why would you possibly have a successful day? If your only hope for survival is a spiritual experience and you haven't armed yourself with any component of that and have gone out to your fellows to have an experience, why why, in God's name, would it be successful? So that has been a, a tremendous uh, thing for me. Um, I want to talk about 11 and drive us into 12. And what I want to ask you to do is, let's take one more break. Okay, we'll take like seven, like one minute over burning a cigarette. And then we'll come back for one final session. Stay with me. Eat sugar. Do a bump. Do whatever you got to do. And uh, we'll be back here in six or seven minutes, and we'll 